The following is my conversation with Mitch Joel. Mitch is the co-founder of Thinkers One, a company that offers personalized and bite-sized thought leadership from some of the best thinkers in the world. Mitch is also an author. His book, Six Pixels of Separation, is a business bestseller, and his book, Control-Alt-Delete, was named one of the best business books of 2013 by Amazon. Mitch is also a frequent keynote speaker, speaking at companies like Google, Shopify, and Microsoft. He's also a fellow podcaster, hosting the Six Pixels of Separation podcast, which has featured many household names, such as Seth Godin. In this conversation, we talk about Mitch's career and life journey. We also delve into what AI tools like ChatGPT and Midjourney are and are not. Mitch also shares some of the key things that made the biggest difference in his career, as well as detailed advice for young people looking to lead a fulfilling life and career. We talk about comedy, how to be a great public speaker, and much, much more. Mitch is an excellent thinker, writer, and as you will see, speaker. He really showed me how far I still have to come. I really hope you find this conversation as interesting as I did. Enjoy. So Mitch, thank you so much for joining me today. Nice to meet you, Owen. Thanks for having me. Yeah, of course. Well, why don't you begin by telling us a bit of your a bit about your career and life journey um, from growing up to co-founding Thinkers One. Well, it's a long, sordid story. I quasi-detailed it in my second book, Control Alt Delete, by talking about how my life was very squiggly and how the most interesting careers typically are. They don't go from bottom left to top right, and mine didn't either. I come from a middle class, lower middle class family to working parents, three brothers. And I think in order for us not to fight a lot, my parents would do a gift for all of us to share versus individual gifts. And just by fortune of both privilege and where I live and where I was brought up, that was the beginning of the computer revolution. So we had the earliest iterations of Pong and Atari and Intellivision and all those things. And I was quite fascinated with technology at that point, but at the same time, also really interested in music and entertainment and not knowing how or what I would do because I wasn't a classically well-gifted student. I just knew I wanted to both be successful, whatever that meant at a very young age. And at the same time, I was really interested in those areas. And just by happenstance of evolution of computers and being interested in writing and creating some newsletters on very primal and early versions of dot matrix printers and early desktop publishing, I found myself really interested in journalism, music, technology. I started playing the electric bass and that was a lot of fun. I had a brother who was quite musical as well, a guitar player. And I found myself uh, right around grade 11, meeting somebody who, again, it sounds weird, but at the time, this was like the blockbuster world of renting videos and things like that. And this person had the idea to rent CDs out, which you couldn't legally do. Movies were very different from music, but he was still doing this. And I helped him catalog his library for what was in, what was out, what was coming in. And this person wound up writing for a very large national teen magazine in Canada that was both in French and English, full color glossy, very, very big publication. And this is all pre-internet and even pre-entertainment television and things like that. You had radio, but not, not much else. And so I found myself typing for them because they didn't know how to type. So they would interview people, write up articles by hand on you know just regular paper. And then they would read it to me and I would type it out or I would take their handwriting and write these articles. 
And that led me to having interviews and that led me to actually writing articles and meeting the editor and publisher. And that gave me the bug of music journalism and journalism in, in general. And it was, again, just a very strange time where in Quebec, we have CEGEP, which is grade 12 and 13. I found myself very interested in school because I was studying music, but at the same time, really loving this life where I was meeting rock stars and doing interviews and going to concerts for free and being backstage. And at the same time, early days of what was becoming the internet through modems and technology. So I found myself deciding to publish my own music magazines at a very young age and still focusing on technology and writing about it and speaking about it. And then once the first web browser came out a couple of years after that, which was the early nineties, you know, it really opened my eyes to this is what's going to happen with media and technology. And just through life and going through life, I was the editor of a local newspaper that had a small online thing. I had met somebody who was working at one of the first search engines before Google. They invited me to come in because of my ad sales background and media background to do ad sales. We built out what is now a lot of the channels you see in terms of pay-per-click and sponsored links and banner ads. We were doing this before, like I said, even Google existed. Um, went through the whole dot-com boom, Boston Echo, the first one worked for a couple of people that I had known in the mobile content world. And again, I say mobile content now and everyone thinks about apps and smartphones. Back then, there wasn't even interoperability between carriers, meaning if I was on one wireless carrier and you were on another, you could text one another. And that's how early that day was. Um, started a record company, got excited about that, which did quite well without me being there. But at the same time, I met two business partners who had an established agency called Twist Image. And that was really where things started to turn for me. And that was the early 2000s. Uh, I saw this opportunity with these partners to build what is now known as digital marketing agencies and all that stuff. But again, back then, it really wasn't. I think people thought we were heretics for saying things like online advertising will be more important than TV advertising. But we built this agency, brought in a fourth partner, and we built it over several years. And in that, my role as president was definitely sales, but the slight angle that we took was I started a blog called Six Pixels of Separation, which also became a podcast, both of which still happen now. I got a couple a book deal. So I published a book called Six Pixels of Separation, the one called Control-Alt-Delete. And in that, I did a lot of public speaking and keynote speeches which led to representation with speaking bureaus. And so we went on this incredible journey of building this business and creating content. And you know, about 10 years ago, nine years ago, we sold the business to WPP, which is a very large public company. And we changed the agency from Twist Image into Miram by bringing in a bunch of other agencies they had acquired over the years. And then about five years ago, I left the agency. My tenure was done. I brought with myself the assets of six pixels of separation. So the blog, the podcast, my speaking contracts, my publishing deals, and took the small office with Aubrey Rosenheck, who was at the time our financial officer or chief operating officer too. And we were just running that business and investing and doing things like that. And then we stumbled on this idea, which obviously was, you know, very much became an idea because of COVID essentially. And it's called Thinkers One, which was this idea that, you know, instead of taking all of these big masterclasses 
or flying somewhere to speak somewhere for an hour, there's probably something around this idea of bite-sized and personalized thought leadership. And so we created this platform, which is synchronous and asynchronous products for thought leaders to connect with different types of organizations who typically can't afford big keynote fees or big consulting fees. And again, the trick is because of technology, it's very easy to buy. It's all e-commerce based. So there's no back and forth. There's no billing and invoicing and procurement. You just buy it on a credit card and get your videos or have them show up to your meetings. And the other part of it was we're living in a time of quiet quitting and this craziness of what is work from home and remote work and hybrid work. And we just realized that this tool, this content, this personalized content is a great way for businesses to create better team experiences and a great way to create something special for their clients. So in a world where we still go to events, now you can have the thought leader pop into a lunch and learn or a regular meeting. Um, and with that, I still do a lot of keynote speaking and investing and advising and create a lot of content. And that's a long way of saying that's me. <laughs> well, that's awesome. Uh, well, one of the, the topics that you um, offer your thought leadership in is AI. And that's why I'm having you on the show today. So I was, I was wondering, what do you think the next um, few years of AI looks like? And do you have any advice for people looking to future, future, self, future proof themselves in the next uh, few years? It depends on how you define what AI is. So right now in my work, I've decided to delineate between what real artificial intelligence is and what I'll call these generative AI tools are. My area of focus has been much closer on generative AI. While I can speak somewhat cogently to artificial intelligence, I'm just careful about doing that because there are some real computer scientists and technologists out there that really understand what this is way better than I do. And I'm spending a lot of my time learning and trying to understand it better. And at the same time, as I'm going through this process, what I'm quickly uncovering is that it's very concerning because even the experts who are the smartest ones who are developing this technology, who are working with large language models and large neural networks and really into the coding and understanding of what these machines are doing, can't seem to agree on whether this is gonna destroy humanity in the short term or be the greatest thing for humanity ever. And that's a trigger for me because it's very concerning based off of what I've been through in the technological cycles of the past 30 plus years to recognize that this is the first time that there, forget a uniformity around thought, but such a divergent of thoughts. So I'll put that aside and speak more to the generative AI tools, which are things that we're seeing like ChatGPT or DALL-E or MidJourney and things like that. And when you say, you know, what are you seeing in the next few years? It's taking me aback also because it's hard. It's hard to project into a, into that many years when every month a new version of this technology comes out that seems to take you years and years into the future. So one thing I'm very candid about is I'm not a really good futurist. I'm a really good presentist. So I can look at a lot of the technologies that are present in our society today and help businesses or individuals understand what they are and what they mean. I think I can start from a better place of conversation with you, Owen, from that side, rather than saying, this is where it's going. I think 
it, it could go as far as destroying humanity. It could go as far as being the greatest thing for humanity. And in the short and near term, what's very clear to me is that a lot of this technology is already 98% more creative than most of our population. So how do you how do you think about the short term, these generative tools? Why don't we start with ChatGPT? What do you think are the, the best use cases? Um, what do you think it's really good at and, and maybe not so good at? And what areas do you think it's going to make the biggest difference? Yeah, I just had a conversation with a friend of mine, Josh Burnoff, who is a consultant who used to work at Forrester and was the co-author of Groundswell, which is a very well-known book on social technology. And he's just published a book on how to write business books and nonfiction books. And when we had this conversation just the other day about ChatGPT, I thought his point about what it can never do was very salient. Now, he would use the word never. I would use the word right now. His main point is that it's not great at what he would call wit. Now, you can take the word wit and take that to mean character. You could take that to mean voice. I think it's really good at taking a style and playing on it. I don't think it is that great at taking it and making it unique to an individual. So it does really well at passing low to medium quality content. If I said to it, please think like an AI expert journalist, write me a 500 word article about what generative AI tools mean to the advertising industry, I think it would do better than a very bad copywriter. And I think it would do as okay as an okay copywriter. What I don't think it'll do, even with prompting to write in the style of somebody we know, love and trust, or in the styles of, or having it tweaked to different writing prompts and writing voices, that it does it exceptionally well. I think it's quite average. The challenge with that is we live in a world where average is pretty good. So that's the the thing we have to recognize is it's actually pretty good. It can do a press release for you. It can do an article like that. It's not going to produce a work that would make you think that this is the next Malcolm Gladwell or the next Kai-Fu Lee or whoever else you admire in the space. So it's not great at that, but the other stuff it's really good at. And what I think it does for the people who are above good average is it just makes you very, very dangerous, very, very quickly. So I see people who are experts in a myriad of arenas and they'll post on Facebook something like hive mind here or four or five titles for a keynote I'm thinking about presenting. Which one do you like? And I'll look at them and think they're quite average. And if I just put them into chat GPT with some good prompting out of the gate, I can do better than that. When I think about it and, and for me, I look at it more like it's a great co-pilot. So instead of starting with a blank page, I might be inspired by an article or a tweet. I could take that article, put it into ChatGPT, and tell it to summarize that article for me. I could then read the article, look at the summary, and see if it's correct. And then I could say to it, now give me five opposing perspectives on why that article is wrong, or give me five perspectives on why that article is right, or think like a media researcher, and what is this article missing? And from that, I feel like I have a really good notebook of ideas that I could then formulate my own perspective on. From there, I could write something out, put it back in and tell it to rewrite it into five different types of writing styles. 
I might want it to be more journalistic, more academic, friendlier. I might ask it to rewrite this at a grade 11 reading level. I mean, I could ask it to do anything essentially and get bad feedback. Now, am I going to copy and paste that? No, I'm going to see how that makes me rethink what I was thinking about. I might ask it to create titles for me. I'm not great at creating titles. That usually is a problem for me at the end of writing something. From that, it could be inspiration. I might tell it to play with words. I might tell it to use puns. I might give it prompts that I know as someone who's got almost 40 years of experience writing to do things that I would normally have to ask a friend to do. From that perspective, it's great. Asking it to create uh, tags, links, asking it for social media types of prompts to use it based off of that article. Very, very good as well. So it does a lot of the stuff I'm not great at. It does a lot of the stuff that I would typically want someone to help me with, but it, it just wouldn't work time-wise. And I think ultimately it's very skilled at being a very good brainstorm partner, copy editor. Uh, and so it's, it's not much more than what you would get out of a Grammarly or a spell checker, but it's got this really good I ability to guess texts based off of whatever large language models that have been or databases have been plugged into it. When you're looking at creatives or just employees in general, are there certain qualities that they should possess to, um, like I know Dropbox just laid off a whole host of employees um, with uh, with some of the new generative AI things. Are there are there any um, any qualities that that people if they want to be resilient to job layoffs and things like that that they should possess it's two things and it's no different than the two things i would have recommended prior to the commercialization of generative ai tools that would be one is you should be somewhat living your work in public so whether that means having a robust linkedin profile whether that means having a podcast of your own or writing of your own or TikTok of your own or whatever, or Twitter of your own. Like, I don't really care, but I think it's important for everyone to demonstrate what makes them unique in the area that they're interested in pursuing a career in. So that's one. And then two is just not being lazy. And lazy just means a lot of people know how to sit on TikTok for six hours and get lost in the rabbit hole of great videos, but few people know how to actually create something compelling on TikTok. So I would say get really smart with the tools, whether it's generative AI tools or beyond. And what happens there is you have this interesting combination of both, here's what I'm learning, here's what I'm sharing, this is what I'm reading, this is what I think about what I'm reading, this is what I think about what I'm seeing, coupled with, and I'm using these tools that everybody is talking about or having to understand, and I understand them. So in a world that we live in right now, that creates a better moat than somebody who doesn't have any form of platform that I can't simply Google search or look up on LinkedIn. And it's somebody that I would feel when looking at a profile, I'd say they seem very adept at all the stuff that I'm just trying to catch myself up on. And both of those to not do are almost inexcusable in this day and age. I'm always amazed at people, especially in the creative fields who come to me and say, you know, I want to be a writer. What should I do? And I Googled and I'm like, you don't even have a blog, you know, like you don't even write articles or share them on LinkedIn. You're not on medium. You're not on Substack. 
it's very hard in this day and age to claim that you want to be something in a world where you can do anything. And the barrier of entry for that is next to zero. So even if you said to me, I want to start a business and you haven't tinkered with Shopify or tried to sell something, whether it's an affiliate or even creating a product, whether it's a physical good or a virtual good, that's going to be a hard hill for me to climb or believe as you walk into my office. Like, why didn't you spend your summer building a Shopify site? I don't care if you have a million dollars in sales. I just want to know that you have thought of things, put them into market, had a strategy around it. And the barrier to do that is really just time. I mean, it doesn't really require even that much money at this point. Are there any specific use cases um, with gener generative AI or just AI in general um, now or in the next little while that you're specifically excited to see? I mean, I'm blown away every day. I'm blown away when I see you know, a, a newer version of mid-journey versus an older version of mid-journey. I'm blown away when I subscribe to a lot of newsletters from people who are working in the generative AI space. And when I see some of the prompts and I try them and I watch as my individual prompts that I have set up in ChatGPT learn and grow each independently because I use different prompt chats for different activities that I'm doing. So again, it's not one of those things where I'm looking at it and going, oh, you know, it's very incremental, this growth. I mean, I can't imagine anybody who is using any of these tools who feels like, I, you know, it's kind of going slow. If anything, it's the first time in all of my years where it's unclear how it's going to pan out. It's unclear to me what the next thing is around the corner because having the baseline of all these generative tools, if you then think about all the databases that organizations or industries have and how they can apply them to be specific to their industry or business, your brain starts melting. And that's ultimately where I'm at, where every day and every newsletter I open, I'm somewhat amazed by something that I see that I didn't know the day before, which in the cycle of new technology is pretty rare. It, it took a while to go from web browsers to social media, to mobile, to seeing how e-commerce was playing out. These were leaps that are still evolving. And yet with these generative AI tools, it feels like yesterday that someone would say to me, oh, it could never do anything creative. And now it's the last thing anybody would say. Now, some people might argue, well, how original is it? Or how creative is it? Or I could tell the difference between this and that. I don't think that those are metrics by which we would use to define something as being creative. And I think creativity is very subjective. So if I said to you, hey, go through my 10 most recent posts and tell me which is AI and which is Mitch Joel, I'm fairly certain you wouldn't be able to figure out where I used AI for a title or where I didn't. And that would suggest to me that it's quite creative. Mm -hmm. How would you define creativity? I don't judge. I think it was Sarah Silverman who said, I don't judge my ear holes. <laughs> when someone says like, oh, that band sucks, or I don't like that artist. She says, I don't judge my ear holes. And that's how I define creativity. I think anything can be creative. I think there are creative and beautiful solutions to very technical challenges. I think there are lawyers and accountants and mathematicians in particular that are beautifully, brilliantly creative and how they both build their businesses, how they can explain what they do, how they're able to come up with new and different ideas. I think 
subjecting creativity to just the arts is probably one of the biggest mistakes we've ever made. And that was really brought forward to me by, you know, great thinkers like Seth Godin would be a great example of someone who I admire greatly, who really talks about even work being a form of art, which is hard for a lot of people to wrap their heads around. And I get it, especially when you're a frontline employee or you're working for minimum wage. But the other side of that is if you go into work with the spirit of this is a job that I'm taking because of how you're paying me and I've agreed to that. That's one way to approach your job. I've never approached any jobs that I've had like that. I've always approached jobs like that as I see what you're paying me for these groups of tasks. I'm going to come in and blow you away so that you really want to pay me more and have me do more things. Now that led me on a path to be entrepreneurial and to no longer want to seek employment, but rather to build employment. And that's a different attitude. But yeah, that's how I see this idea of being creative. I think you can be creative in anything that you do, in any endeavor that you do. It's interesting you uh, mentioned Seth Godin. I'm a big fan of his work as well. I just recently listened to two of his podcasts on um, Tim Ferriss' show. Um, I saw that he he wrote a recommendation on your website. I was just wondering how that relationship was built and uh, if, if there's any other um, role models or, or key people that you look up to in the space. If I go back to that search engine that I was talking about that was pre-Google, at the time, there was a very large conference that happened in New York called Internet World. And that was a place where Seth had, I believe, started launching his book, Permission Marketing, which was one of his earlier books. Prior to that, he wrote another book called Survival is Not Enough that really captivated me. And to this day, it's still one of my favorite books. And I was really taken by the format of how he wrote it, how he wrote it, how he was talking about digital and internet marketing without really saying those words, and how, how he was being provocative of this idea that let's not mess this up. I'm not saying we didn't mess it up. We probably did. And we probably should have listened to him more closely. But he was someone who was very early in blogging and sharing his thoughts. And so here's an author that I really like. I actually met him at that event. He doesn't remember it. And I, I vaguely remember it, but that was where we first connected. And I was just following him. And as somebody who reads voraciously, this was a really tectonic shift. I mean, imagine you love an author and you're waiting for their next book. People who like Game of Thrones and George R. R. Martin know exactly what I'm talking about. You're waiting years and years for this person to create something new. And here we have somebody like Seth Godin every day for free on his blog, sharing something. And that was very inspirational to me, but probably was the main inspiration of why I started Six Pixels of Separation as well. And over the years, I would just constantly write to him and nag him and probably annoy him. And early days of podcasting, I would beg and plead if he'd be a guest. And he was just very kind and generous to me. And over the years, we would run into each other events that I was speaking at, events he was speaking at, I would seek out events he'd be speaking at or just any opportunity to connect. And, you know, just thankfully over the years, we developed some type of relationship. I wouldn't dare call him a friend or anything like that, but he's somebody that I know that I trust that I can, you know, reach out to when needed. And he's been overly generous to somebody he doesn't have to be that generous to in terms of me. And so I, I keep that in a secure vault, <laughs> that ability, and only unlock the vault when there's something I'd really like or want. 
And at the same time, hope I'm providing value to him by talking about his stuff and sharing his stuff. And the truth is he's one of hundreds at this point because of the podcast and because of my ability to get up on stages and do things I have met and become friends with or peers of many of the people whose work I greatly admire. And the list is long and large. Go to thinkers1.com and look at all the people on the platform. Those are people who I love, admire, and respect. Go to sixpixels.com and look at the 16 plus years of episodes I've done. Most of the people that I've had as guests are people that I admire, like, and respect. There are people who are captains of industry now who are people that I, I love and admire and, and just I'm fortunate to be able to text or call once in a while or see on my show. So it's a boundless list of hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of incredible thought leaders, authors, speakers, writers. I'm just, I'm really, really privileged. Of all the books you've read, um, maybe it was the time frame that you read them, but are there any specific books that had a profound impact on your life? Oh, there are countless. And it happens time and time again. You know, one book that I know Seth and I share a love for is Stephen Pressfield's The War of Art. This is a book that I was exposed to long before I read it by a coach who I used to train with in the martial arts self-defense world, Tony Blauer, who was a huge influence on my life too. And I became a coach within his work and spent many, many years working and almost basically living in his house, almost becoming a very close friend of him to this day. And he was a voracious reader and I was not. So I would just always admire the bookshelf. And he would talk about that book. And I bought a very early copy of it. I have a first edition, the silver one that people still talk about. I have a couple of those, I think, actually. And I read it many years later and it really inspired me, this idea of what we were talking about, that creativity isn't just an act for artists, that it is an effort, that there's a lot of resistance to be honest and open and, and express how you think. That's definitely you know, one book that, that changed my thinking. I think about the work, work of Susan Orleans, who is a creative nonfiction author, and I've had her on my show, but following the work she's done too, around how do you take real events and build them into a creative storytelling-based way I find her work super inspirational. And even though her work isn't necessarily about creating, I think when you read how she writes about things like libraries and things like that, you get a lot of learning out of that that is very, very profound. I mean, there are so many. More recently, I read a book called Trust by Hernan Diaz, which is a work of fiction, but again, just creatively how it's pulled together, just really re-inspired me to not just keep reading and reading more, but how I think about voices and the voices we create and how we tell stories. Um, I could go on and on. It's a never ending list of brilliant, but there's so much great content out there. It's amazing. If there had to be one book that you recommended to people um, beginning in undergrad or um, just leaving high school, is there a specific book that you recommend? I mean, I do think the war of art is a really inspiring place to start. I do think Seth's latest book, The Song of Significance, would be a really effective book for people to think about for sure. And then I just think 
you need to start digging into some of the books around principles and better ways to live. So for some people, you fall into the more motivational world of the Eckhart Tolle's of the world. You have great books by friends of mine, like Laura Gassner Auding, her book Limitless is a, another great example of books that fall into that. Uh, there are books that are more science-based or more academic-based. It depends on the personality type, but my general sentiment is, you know, go through my podcast archive or go through anybody who has a large podcast archive. Tim Ferriss would be another great example. Lex Friedman is another great one. Jenny Blake has an incredible podcast too. I just go through the past guests and just look at the titles. Don't forget about the guests. Just look at what the content is about and start digging in. Those are great primers that will guide you to a whole bunch of different books and ideas that will definitely blow you away. Another great thinker in that space for anybody at that level in their career is Dory Clark. She's written some incredible books about a myriad of topics that are related to how you move forward professionally, but she's just done a ton of free stuff and has been a guest on a, on a ton of podcasts as well. It's funny you mentioned um, Tim Ferriss and Lex Fridman. Lex Fridman's definitely, they're, they're, they both are, but they're definitely um, have shaped a lot of the, the way I view the world and a lot of the information I take into my head is is from them. Um, so maybe I'll, I'll end with the question from Lex Fridman. Um, what advice do you have for young people looking to have um, a fulfilling career or life in general? Balance. I think you need to view life as a three-legged stool. And the legs of that stool are personal, professional, and community. So you need to have a strong personal relationships. That's family for sure, because those people you don't choose, but maybe more importantly, friends, people you're connected to. Jeffrey Gittimer, who wrote the Sales Bible and is also an author of incredible books that are very helpful, always says that your network is your net worth. And I believe that implicitly, which would lead to another great book by Keith Ferrazzi, Never Eat Alone. So really think about what you're doing in your personal life and the value and quality of your friends. People talk about the five people you surround yourself as an indication of you know, the quality of your life. Professionally, you have to figure out what is the work? What work matters? Are you an employee? Are you self-employed? Are you an entrepreneur? What do those lives look like? What would each path lead to? And how fulfilling would it be for you? Some people don't like the risk and they'd rather be employed and do the work and have a different type of life. Some people really want to have an unlimited potential. So you'd want to be entrepreneurial. Some people want to not have the overbearingness of an employer, but at the same time, don't have a tremendous amount of risk. So they're more self-employed. I think most jobs and careers and industries that you choose have an opportunity in one of those three arenas. And you have to really define what is best for your character and personality and what you really want out of life. And then the community aspect is just where are you contributing uh, locally, nationally and internationally. And you'd want to have all three of those boxes checked off. What are you doing in your local community? What are you doing for your country, province, state? What are you doing internationally to make the world a better place after than it was before? And then if you use the imagery of that stool, understand that if you're not doing one of those three things, the stool is going to tip over and try to figure out what the balance is because you need to have that healthy balance. So I don't believe in work-life balance. I believe in that stool and having that be the balancing component of, of what makes it great. 
and then really figuring out, you know, where you want to do that, choosing where you live and what you do is a huge factor in what you want to do. People think, oh, you know, it's COVID and I'm going to move to a more rural place and I can work from anywhere. That is true. But that networking ability is much more complex. You're limiting yourself by population. You're limiting yourself by ability to get somewhere effectively fast. I live here in Montreal and there are people who live off island and you don't see them at networking events. It's too big of a pain to drive the 20 minutes. And I get that or take public transit. That's true, but that is a choice. And all of those things have limiting impacts on your ability to grow a powerful network. I think these technologies are great, what we're doing here. So you and I are connecting and I think it's a real connection. I'm not belittling it, but it's not the same as if we were sitting on a park bench having this conversation. And so those are the things I think anybody at the beginning of their career needs to really focus on. And then I'll toss in a question from uh, Tim Ferriss as well. Are there any, looking back at your life, are there any Alchemides levers, any key things that you did that made the, the biggest impact on your life? 100%. Professionally, it was, again, it was interesting because at this time, blogging was very popular and podcasting. And I was really building a powerful social network while at the same time, it was early days. So you could optimize for things. And people think that we built this successful agency because we had this social media platform. But the truth is that wasn't what was the big lever. The big lever for us was getting involved in our industry associations. Our involvement in the Canadian Marketing Association, the Interactive Advertising Bureau, the National Retail Federation, groups like that are the places where we didn't just join as members to say, hey, we support our industry. But we said that we would not join unless we had some type of active involvement. And it was in those meetings and conversations that we met the most incredible people who eventually became clients and supporters and friends and people who booked me to speak that led to more and more clients. And so what's interesting is as the emergence of digital technology was there and we were at the real tip of that wave and, and pushing the whole industry forward, what really worked for us was getting very active in our local community. And to this day, I still believe that when those levers are happening, because I think about them a lot, more often than not, they come from that community post in that stool. So I'm a, a very big proponent of getting active. And as a young person, they love it when you show up. They often have student rights, and they're very excited to have the next generation of industry leaders be at their events, volunteer, get active there. Those were 100% the levers. And what about in your personal life? I know for a lot of people, things like starting working out are kind of a catalyst for a whole host of other um, benefits. Are, are there any specific things that stand out for you? Yeah. Look, within every one of those three-legged stools is another three-legged stool. Right? And so that three-legged stool is for sure your mental health, your physical health, and your spiritual health. And you have to figure out what works best for you, what the best combination is for you. And again, in my life and evolution, it does change and evolve. So of course you need to try to be active, which I've been not great at lately, but for me, what I find out of all of those things in that realm has always been reading, reading a lot and tip and, and really reading books, whether it's fiction or nonfiction. In fact, I'm becoming a bigger and bigger fan of fiction, which is surprising to me because I was such a nonfiction reader for so long, I find that that's the one activity that has really helped change my brain 
see the world differently, understand how people think and operate. When you read fiction, you're really just hearing somebody talk out stories. Great fiction, not just you know bad stuff. Bad stuff is good too, but you know, but reading, reading would be my one. And how do you stay organized? Do you have any um, specific tools that you use or or methods to approach? It seems like you've been able to have an extremely productive career. I'm wondering if there's underlying systems that lay behind that. Yeah, I don't know if they're as specific as what you're alluding to or what Tim Ferriss alludes to. The way in which I am organized, I don't think is the most efficient or best way. And when I read about productivity experts and what they do, and I see how they do things, I could see it working more effectively than the way I do it, but it's not necessarily great. I'm just a big believer in taking things in saving the stuff that's great and having a place to put them out. So whether it's a physical notebook, which I keep notes here, but at the same time, I have notes open here that I might save something in some app or whatever I might use. That's all great. But for me, the important part of the productivity is the output of it. So it's like, where does it go into? Is it into a client thing? Is it an idea? Is it become a podcast interview? Uh, so as long as I have that circle working again speaking to that three-legged stool input reading listening doing note taking understanding it and then the output part of it which might be an article it might be something i say on the radio it might be something i say here that to me is is how i'm i organize so it's not necessarily the tools so much as the understanding that whatever i take in i need to make sure that i'm either going to discard it because i'm not using it capturing it and then somehow outputting it or sharing it that's how I see the productivity engine for me working more effectively. It seems like you have a similar approach into, in the way you present and speak. Um, it seems like you're a very concise speaker and eloquent speaker. Do you have any advice on, on becoming a great uh, presenter and um, public speaker in general? I mean, it's a, that is an art form. And I think the misnomer is people think it, it's one of those things where when it looks easy, everybody thinks they can do it. Well, I could write a book or oh, I could give a keynote. Okay, go, go, go and tell me how, good, how's that going to work out for you? After 20 years, I think I make it look easy. And I think after 20 years, I still get as anxious as day one. So part of what it is, well, there's a couple of things. One is the content. And that takes a lot of years of curating and understanding what makes content really work formulating that content so it works in a physical arena because that's very different than a video arena or a written arena not easy the performance of it you know, i go back and think about my life that oh it's kind of weird like i was into break dancing and i was into magic and doing magic shows for and i wasn't ever or, or theater and while it always made me nervous and i never loved it it gave me enough tools that when i get up on stage i had a base for it but at the same time i trained really hard and i work with some of the world's greatest speaking training people or follow their work or think about it a lot and then there's just a communication of it i spent a lot of time pre-internet interviewing some of the greatest rock stars ever to live and then i'd have to go back and listen to this cassette recording of it and hear me go um uh you know right interrupt them all these things and if you have to transcribe hours and hours of that you get really frustrated with yourself very quickly so when people say how clean I speak, it's because I got so sick of hearing me um and uhs, right? You know, I think I do why this, that I've gotten better at it. And now as I edit my own podcast, which I still edit, I do that because one is I'm trying to clean up how I speak, which I can do because I can see it very visually how often I stammer or stop or do something I don't like. 
But more importantly, I'm also listening to some of the greatest thinkers do the same thing and watching how they have these repetitive vocal tics and things like that. So it's not one thing, it's a ton of things that takes a ton of years to focus on and pay attention to. And it's also my job. So it's very different than somebody who's doing some other form of work and saying, I'd like to go and give a keynote. What they don't always understand is that people who are at the top of their game in that spend all of their time trying to be great at that. So it's a lot of things. And that's just the tip of the iceberg in terms of what I try to do to communicate better and more effectively. It's not easy. It's interesting. I read that your um, your first inter- first professional job was uh, interviewing Motley Crue. That's pretty. That's yeah, Tommy cool. Lee from Motley Crue. Wow. Yeah. Yeah, and I was a huge fan. That's why I got the opportunity, and it was really intimidating and really scary. And over the course of the many years, that format of conversation is insane because what happens is the artist comes to town and they line you up in a hotel lobby and give everybody fifteen to thirty minutes with the artist. Now, if you're not first or you're closer to last, that's a bad place to be because they're tired. They've been answering the same questions every day. What I started seeing or listening to in those conversations that I was having is they sound bored. And I thought, well, if they're bored, how I transcribe is going to be boring. And more importantly, how the reader is going to take it is going to be the same thing they see everywhere else. That forced me to do a lot more research. And in that research, I thought of tricks, research, by the way, not just about the artist, but about how to have a compelling conversation. So what happens when you explore all of that is you start going in and saying things that are not going to offend them or take them you know, off and be surprised by, but catalysts for better forms of conversation. So if they like golf and I don't like golf, I might go in and go, I heard you're a great golfer. I think we have a course here, you know, have you tried that out? Or I would say something like what it, like, I hate golf. Like, tell me why you like it. And because they're so passionate about it, they go off. And at that point I can start squeaking in. And again, through the years, you see some great conversationalists do that. You know, Charlie Rose turned out to not be a great human being, but was exceptionally good at bringing out conversation. Howard Stern would be another great example of somebody who can ask something, take them to a 180, take them somewhere else. And that imbalance creates a unique output. I often think about ways in which I could bring somebody to a place where it's going to get them to say or think or do something that they haven't done before. That is a great starting place. But underneath that, it's not the surprise or the shock. It's the value of that content and then what you do with it after. It's like Nardwar. He's, uh, a He's great at that. Yeah. 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 My dad went to high school with him and, it, and the amount of research he does um, is crazy. And it, it, it pays off in his conversations because he has he's, has these uh, normally stoic people sometimes completely freaking out. Yeah. And I think that that is a great tactic to use, but I do think there needs to be a lot more under it. And it's a style. So you have to ask yourself as somebody having that conversation, where do I want the person who I'm speaking to, to be in this? Because Nardwar is a great example of also a caricature and a character. And sometimes that can occupy a lot of oxygen between two people. So if Owen loves that, that's great. For someone like me, I might say, "Uh, I wish there was more focus on the person he's interviewing. When I think about my podcast, I'll often get feedback that is, hey, can Mitch just shut up? And the answer is I can, 
but I'm trying to create a different type of conversation from somebody who has had success as a business person, as a thought leader. I mean, I have my own business around that, speaking to somebody about similar things. So yes, often I can ask a question and shut up, but that's not the style of what I'm trying to do. I'm trying to capture what would happen in a cafe if I were to sit down with somebody like Seth Godin, for example, or Laura Gassner Odding, or Jay Bear, or whomever, or Dory Clark, what that conversation might sound like that everybody can be a fly on the wall for. So it's a different, you have to understand the balance also of what the context is, not just the content. And I think a lot of people miss that, but Nardwar is a great example of somebody who leverages research to create a unique outcome. How do you do your research when you're preparing for podcast guests or preparing for a, a keynote uh, speech? Very different for those two, for sure. For a podcast, I really don't prepare much until a couple of days before. But what I mean by that is I probably have read a lot of the things they put out or watched or listened to them. And I'm just capturing things in my brain that I don't put onto physical paper. And then when I sit down and go, okay, what's going to happen here? It's usually just bullet point notes of things that I remember from all the weeks and months of thinking about that person. Cause that to me is obviously the stuff that's most important. It's the stuff that's sitting there. I'll then typically review a couple of table of contents just to make sure that I captured the things that I had thought or tried to remember. And then I just do a simple couple lines just so I make sure I know the right names and titles of their books and the orders and some chronology stuff that I want to make sure I get right. But otherwise my answer is how often do you prepare for a conversation you're having with someone that you're meeting for coffee? So I want it to be very organic in that way. The keynotes are very different. My keynote master file of slides is in the thousands. So I will see something and take a screenshot of it and just dump it in this master deck. And then when it's time to go to speak after speaking to the client and what their needs are, I'll go in and you know, keep some of the core stories that I think are very relevant to every audience, but maybe tweak out some of the slides and turn it into something more. So just that screenshot is usually the catalyst for me to create some form of graphic image, something that I will speak to. I don't really practice it as a one minute to minute 60. I've been doing it long enough where I'm comfortable with my work and I pretty much know when I see this story and the flow of the slides where I'm going and then it's like any stand-up comedian where you're just working the material a lot on the road and seeing what resonates and what doesn't with audiences. It's very, very different than any other art form. I have to say, I did my five minutes of stand-up comedy and I, I have tremendous respect for stand-up comedies who get up there. After 20 years of doing thousands of keynote speeches, I still don't have the courage to try five minutes of stand-up comedy. <laughs> and I love the art form and I follow it and I love more than even listening to stand-up comedians. I love listening to stand-up comedians talk about the art because I mm -hmm. think it's so close to the work that I do as a keynote speaker. And I still would never have the courage to get up and do that. Even though when I do what I do, people will often say you're quite funny or they, I get laughs. I'm, and I am trying to get them, but I'm not really trying to get them. So I say total respect for that. Uh, do you have any key key comics that you uh, admire or listen to? Oh, I mean, I could listen to Jerry Seinfeld talk about comedy and what is funny forever. And at the same time, not liking any of his actual stand-up work. I'm not a fan of his work. 
you know, Louis CK has had a whole bunch of things going on, but he's definitely somebody that when I see clips of, I say to myself, wow, this is somebody who is very in touch with their persona and how they deliver jokes. In terms of joke writing, people like Anthony Jeselnik and Tom Segura very much resonate with me in terms of the beat and storytelling. And again, this can be really offensive. So it's not about where they stand politically, it's just their crafting of it. Um, James A. Castor to me is probably the best of the best. If you haven't seen his three-part series on Netflix called Repertoire, if you're in any form of creative field or thinking about what I could do to be unique, I would say watch Repertoire. It's mind-blowing. And there are probably so many more that I'm not thinking about right now. Awesome. I, I actually had the chance to watch Tom Segura live. It was fantastic. Uh, it was during Sober October, so I think he might have had a little bit of an edge to him that he doesn't usually have, but um, but it was great to see. I liked mostly stories as a stand-up special, and I don't dislike his podcast or any of the stuff he's done. I just don't follow that. Um, Nate Bargatze is another person who I just love his ability to be super clean, but so biting. I do like the more cynical, dry comedy. That's why James A. Castor works so great for me. Um, but yeah, when I talk about these people, again, I, I'm always trying to be clear that I don't necessarily follow everything or go to shows or things like that. But the things I have seen about them or the clips and bits, I'm usually quite in awe of how they do it for sure. It's definitely, definitely an art form. No. Well, Mitch, what, what, uh, what, where can people learn more about you and your work um, do, or anything that you'd, you'd like us to, our listeners yeah. to go to? Well, I appreciate the time, Owen. You can go to Thinkers One to see the latest project I'm working on. You can go to MitchJoel.com or SixPixels.com, and that'll take you to all of the content and stuff that I do. Perfect. Thank you so much for uh, taking the time. Great to meet you, Owen. Thanks for your time. Nice to meet you. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Mitch Joel. To learn more about Mitch, go to MitchJoel.com. And now I'll leave you with a quote from Seth Godin. If failure is not an option, then neither is success. I hope you enjoyed.